Hello and welcome to a brand new Arsblog Arscast right here on Arsblog.com. How are you? Hope you're well. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for being here. As you can hear, my voice is on the mend, improving. Not 100%, but certainly a lot better than it was on Monday morning when I spoke to James uh, in New York City. But it's, you know, it's getting there. It's a slow process. Coming back from injury, you've got to be cautious. You know, you've got to make sure that you don't push it too far. You don't want to aggravate it, get another injury. So if it was a professional footballer, my voice, I reckon it'd have a place on the bench this weekend, ready to come on. You know, about half an hour to go, get stuck into the last 30 minutes of a podcast. And now I realize this analogy makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Still, you know, the point is I'm just, you know, I'm feeling a bit better. Anyway, I hope you guys are feeling okay. It's been a an interesting week, I guess. There's been a lot of talk about Arsenal and the title race. And, you know, the last couple of results obviously haven't been brilliant in the context of a title race against Manchester City because every dropped point feels like you have lost a game. And part of that as well, of course, is the fact that you're you're leading in games. You've got 2-0 leads away from home and you end up not winning those games. That makes it feel worse. But I think it is the fact that it's City. We know what they're about. We know how relentless they are when it comes to this point of the season. They just bang, 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 bang and win games. And you know if you slip up. So, you know, it's it, it feels like we've lost two games in a row. In fact, we've drawn two games in a row. Away games, too. And I know that's probably not going to make too many people feel better, but that's what it is. Then there's been all the talk about why has this happened? Has it been complacency? Have we got too cocky? Have we bottled it? You know, I really dislike the idea that a team that has got to where we are this season can somehow be accused of bottling anything. I just don't buy into that. I think there are other reasons. I think there are tactical reasons. I think there are physical reasons. I think there are reasons related to injuries and team selection and all of those kinds of things, which we will discuss in the second part of this show. Because um, because of the schedule and everything else, we're not doing our normal preview podcast for Patreon. Uh, so we're going to do a bit of a preview podcast and a bit of a wider discussion about what's happened and and all the rest of it uh, in a little while with Lewis Ambrose. He'll be here to talk about all that stuff with me. But first, it has been a difficult week for Arsenal women, defeat to Manchester United and uh, another injury to a big player. So with me to talk about that, the reasons behind it, perhaps, and the ramifications for the season is Tim Stillman. Hello, Tim. Hello there. So, defeat to Manchester United this week, in and of itself, that's a bad thing, given the positions in the table. But the defeat was compounded by what looks like a serious injury for Leah Williamson. We're not quite sure what it is. At the time of recording, anyway, there hasn't been official confirmation, but it does seem to be a bad one, which is a a hammer blow. It it really is. Um, I mean... I, I'd be quite surprised if it wasn't um, an anterior cruciate ligament injury. I think I've, I've seen this before where it's non-contact, the player's leg jars in the ground and their knee buckles. Mm. And given um, how rife that injury is in women's sports in particular, um, I think I've seen this enough times and I'd be very surprised if it wasn't that, but that's speculation obviously at this point. And it's, you know, it's not just like a bit of a, a tragedy, like for the player herself as well, probably going to miss Champions League semi-finals. She's the captain of England. And if that injury is what it looks like, that's the World Cup this summer gone. 
Um, so, you know, really, like, how, how often do you get to captain your country mm. in a World Cup, realistically? That's um, it's a massive, massive thing to miss. And, and she's not the only one in the squad. If, if indeed that is the injury, that'll be the third in the squad. Beth Mead and Vivian Meadham are both ruptured. Their anterior cruciate ligaments... Um, in November and December, respectively. Arsenal have also got Kim Little out. They had a load of injuries, but, you know, looking more short-term, it cost them this game um, as well, frankly, because mm. they're already dealing with loads of injuries. Um, they were a bit patched up. They started the game perfectly well against United. They played really well. They played really, really well. But um, they had seven players out who start every time they're fit. Um, and obviously, Leah's one of those. I mean... The three first choice captains were all out. Um, and Jonas Eideval, for example, he brought on Jem Beatty, uh, centre half at half time, and he just said, I needed leadership um, out mm. there because like, all his captains were getting injured. So it, it cost them the game because it disturbed them, it disrupted their rhythm. They don't have a deep squad at the moment, so they had to restructure and shuffle players around and bring on a teenager on the wing, and then she had to come off later in the game. And it, it absolutely cost them a, a massive game, um, as well as you know what, whatever it might cost Arsenal going forward for the yeah. rest of the season. Three, well... Two definite ACLs and one suspected ACL in one season. I mean, if this happened, you know, on, on the other side with the men's team, people would be asking a lot of questions about, well, are we training too hard? Are the training methods wrong? Are the pitches made of rock? You know, we had all of that um, in the past when Arsenal were a little more injury prone than, than we are at this moment in time. I say that, you know, slightly tongue-in-cheek because we've had some injuries which have disrupted us on that side too. But the seriousness of these injuries and the prevalence of this kind of injury in, in women's football, how how do you explore the root causes of something like this? Because there is um, obviously a lot going on with some of these players in terms of their, their club commitments, but also their international commitments. Yeah, sure. So uh, let me say two things at the top. One, forgive me, this is going to be a long answer because it's okay. multifactorial. Hang on, I'll get a cup um, of tea. <laughs> <laughs> and the second, um, just obviously to caveat at the top that I am no kind of expert uh, on anybody's bodies, let alone women's bodies um, in sports. But um, th this has been written about a lot, talked about a lot within the women's game and, and women's sports in general. So there's two things. Let's take them in turn. The first one is about um, the, the, the prevalence of this injury in women's sports, uh, women's football in particular. Uh, women, women's footballers are somewhere between six to eight times more likely to experience this injury. There are loads of theories behind that. Um, some of them particularly lower down the pyramid around equipment, quality of pitches, um, you know, lack of support staff like strength and conditioning and things like that. Um, actually, you know, at, at the elite level, obviously Arsenal, clubs like that, WSL clubs, they all have strength and conditioning coach, mm. coaches and, and physios and like Gary Lewin is the head of medicine at Arsenal Women. And so there's a lot of expertise there, but it's not the same size as on the men's side. I reckon there are probably in the double figures of guys looking after the men's teams um, who do that kind of job. So there's kind of a little bit of it's about a lack of support. Some of it is around... Um, Women's bodies as well. Again, he says, not as an expert on this at all, but there are theories around like the width of women's hips. And so, for example, um, that that 
produces more stress on the ligaments when players jump. So you look at the way Beth Mead did her ACL, very similar to how Robert Perez and Rob Holding mm. did theirs, hurdling a challenge on the touchline, landing, you know, the, I think they call it the frog jump. Mm. Uh, women apparently are more likely to do that, like the the kind of the frog jumping and landing with the, the legs wider, um, which puts more stress on the ligaments. Um, but there are also other theories that are growing up as well around um, academy football in women's football. Even if like the elite clubs are very professionalised, the academy structure still isn't. It's still basically amateur. They still play on university pitches. You know, that bit hasn't professionalised. And so what you often get is there isn't a good bridge between youth football and professional football. And women's academy players, like I'm willing to bet Arsenal's under 14 boys have a nutritionist. I'm willing to bet. I mean, I don't know if that age they have strength and conditioning coaches, but they will have coaches who look after that stuff. The women don't. So they come from a very, very semi-professional kind of environment in academy football. And then all of a sudden you go and play for Arsenal out of a youth team. All of a sudden you're playing football three times a week. Mm. Someone like Vivian Miedema as well. The, and this is another issue. The player pool is much smaller. There are far fewer women who play football. So there are far fewer women footballers. And so what happens as well is when you're good, you get thrown in early. So someone like Vivian Miedema, she has been playing first team football since she was 15 because uh, she's that good. Mm. And so there isn't that kind of, we've got to bring this player on slowly, maybe send them out on loan, maybe slowly introduce them. It's like, oh my God, this 15 year old is amazing. Yeah, You're playing for here in Veen's first team every week. So there's, there's a bit more stress and there's a big jump um, essentially. So there's that side of it. Um, and, you know, lack of staff on, on when it comes to strength and conditioning. And, and a lot of people are starting to say, actually, the whole thing about women's hips and all of that, that's kind of true. But with more expertise, more research, more staff, you could probably, um, you know, at least diminish the impact of that. So that, that's the kind of the physical side of it. The schedule side of it, um, like I said, there are far fewer players. And this is this is a, like many things in women's football. There are lots of problems that don't have neat answers. Now, the schedule is get is growing, um, and and that's understandable because women's football is growing, and bodies like UEFA and the FA obviously they want to capitalise on that and they want to produce more good games. Mm. And so they've done good things like uh, the Champions League group stage that only came in last season for the first time. So you've got better quality games because it used to be a straight knockout. And frankly, the first two rounds were a waste of time. Mm. They're going to introduce a Nations League um, in UEFA, exactly like the men's. And to all intents and purposes, that makes perfect sense because why did we bring it in in the men's game? Because nobody wanted, nobody got anything out of England v San Marino, for example. In women's football, there are more San Marinos out there. Um Two of Serena Wiegmann's first four games in charge of, of England, one was 20-0, one was 10-0. No one gets anything out of that. It's pointless. Mm. So there's going to be a Nations League. But again, that isn't going to change the number of games, but it's going to change the intensity of games. And that's what's becoming a, a bit of a problem. The champion, the Women's Champions League has 16 teams in it, which makes it a great competition because there's very little crap in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it also means that you we've produced more intense games in the winter. So Arsenal had Juventus and Lyon in their group. That produced four really high-intensity, important games in the winter into the schedule. 
and then and then in women's football you've got in women's football you've got a lot more internationals so there's these this big jump as well if you're an international player in women's football you play a lot more football if you're not an international player you play a lot less and that's a problem as well because you get these massive gaps in the schedule so the arsenal captain kim little she retired from playing for scotland 18 months ago and this summer just passed she went on loan to an american team because the season ended and she was looking at more than four months until the next season started and kim was like i can't go four months without playing football so she went on loan to america and just played six games in june and july and that Mm. was about keeping her ticking over so if you're not playing in a tournament you get these massive gaps and there's a real irregularity of the schedule if you are an international you're basically playing the same schedule as the men, but with far fewer players and far less prospect for rotation. So to, to kind of cap this off, yeah. for last night, Manchester United-Arsenal, Manchester United this season are not in the Champions League. A lot of their players either are not internationals or don't start for their international teams. They've barely had an injury all season, um, which you know you can credit them for that, mm-hmm. um, but they've played a lot fewer games. Whereas Arsenal are in the Champions League and they've got all these internationals. And the other thing with international football is COVID kind of wrecked the schedule because the Olympics is a big thing in women's football. So you had um, Olympics in 2021, Euro 2022. There's a World Cup this summer. There's another Olympics in 2024. There's another Euros in 2025. Five consecutive summers of tournaments and um Guess guess who is in within that schedule who's playing or was expected to play to that schedule? Beth Mead, Vivian Miedema, Leah Williamson played yeah. in those tournaments. What's happened to them? Alexia Pateas, who's the Ballon d'Or winner. The number one and two Ballon d'Or winners for 2022 are currently recovering from ACL injuries. So I don't think all of that's a coincidence. So I told you that would be a long answer, but that's <laughs> kind of, well, not the short of it. That's the long of it. Well, yeah, the long and the short of it. You know, and I, I think what's, you know, what's interesting when you said at the start, there is no need answer for this. I mean, there is no need answer. I'm sitting there going, well, there must be, must be something obvious that yeah, everybody's what do you do? missing. Get rid of the Champions League group stage. Yeah, that would be a complete uh, retrograde step. Of course. It's- I mean, I mean, is it is it in some ways a? I don't want to like diminish anybody's experience in any way when it comes to this, but the increased uh, interest and development of the women's game, it might take a while to get there. And I don't want to say anybody's a casualty of that or anything else, but but these are things, I guess, that are going to be have to uh, have to be factored into how the game has grown, how the game has developed, how the players and how the clubs and every and even the international sides, how they operate as the level of women's football increases and and the demands on the players increase. A hundred percent. The number one, and this is something uh, Jonas Eideval talks about a lot. Um, he's he's pushed back on ideas like lots of games get postponed because they're on non-league pitches or whatever. And then when that happens, everyone says we should have under-soil heating. Mm. And he's pushed back against that a lot and said, actually, no, no, the, the money, if there's money, the money needs to go into like the academy part. If I tell you that England didn't have an under-21 team until Serena Wiegmann was appointed two years ago, they, they didn't even have an under-21 team. That's how underdeveloped the idea of youth football is. But, I mean, is that because there are no under-21 teams for them to play against, for example? Yeah, yeah. that's that's a big part of it. But the, the, 
the big challenge for women's football is deepening the player pool. Mm. And obviously that's going to take a while because, you know, there aren't just loads of 23, 24-year-olds to go, ah, do you want to... um, just be yeah, a professional yeah. footballer for a bit. That that's going to take maybe a decade at least. I think it will happen. It's it's kind of a natural offshoot of the growth of the game. Means hopefully, mm. um, you know, if governments and governing bodies do their bit. And to be fair, in an English, purely English perspective, I think the FA do a great job of this and are really like looking into this stuff. And there's a reason they just won the Euros. It's because the FA invest and care about this a lot. But. Um, you know, like it's going to take at least 10 years um, for this to come through and for like for us to deepen the player pool because mm. it's 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 very short. There's loads of interesting stuff around this as well. Like, uh, for example, XG in women's football, useless stat, completely useless because the variance between players is too big. Mm. So like Vivian Miedemer is like, I don't know, 10 goals above her XG every season. Useless stat because she's so much better than like you know, mm. the worst or the medium players. Whereas in men's football, the pool's so wide, there are so many male footballers that the differences between them are, are pretty slight. So essentially what we need is we just need more women's footballers to meet the demands of this schedule. But if you're a governing body, you do kind of have to try and capitalise on and spotlight and try and, you know, take advantage of. And and also all of this stuff increases visibility as well. So it's it's a bit chicken and egg sure yeah and look hopefully the you know england winning the euros and um the interest in the game that's growing um will help uh, young players maybe see a pathway uh, to help sort of flesh out the the player pool just quickly where where does this leave the season um because you look at the wsl table manchester united uh, are six points ahead of arsenal right now Arsenal do have a Champions League semi-final coming up on on Sunday, dealing with another injury blow going into a, a big game. Is it a case at this point of prioritizing? I know managers will never say, "Yeah, we're going to do this," but you know, realistically, when you're talking about the level of injuries that Arsenal have had to the caliber of players that have been injured as well, does it necessitate maybe thinking about how how best to make the season a success? Yeah, see, see, this is the thing again. Um, actually, when this happens and you have loads of injuries, they, they don't really have a choice anyway. Yeah, true. <laughs> but to play, but to play the players they've got, mm. um, because again, like you know, if you were talking about a men's squad, you'd have twenty-five to thirty players, and you'd even have an academy like to reach into, like. There's no royal rule waters, um, you know, like sitting there wondering like whether we should throw them in. Like the players are the players that they've yeah. got. I, I don't think they'd, they'd do that anyway. It's, it's they've been on a real journey to try and crack getting back into a Champions League semi final. I think they've got a chance even with these injuries. Um, the, the issue for them really, again, going into the schedule, and actually this is no one's fault, this is just how it's turned out. Mm. It, it has been brutal the last two months for Arsenal. If I tell you since mid-February, they've played Manchester City three times, Chelsea twice, Bayern Munich twice, Manchester United, they got Wolfsburg twice, and they've got to go to Chelsea still in May, mm. uh, the penultimate game of the season. It's just like every game at the moment is a ma- either a massive cup game or a massive game ag- or a cup final or a game against the title rival. Like There's just no respite sure. at the moment. So they've been on that treadmill for a while. But one of the things, um, you know, I, I sp- when I spoke to Jonas last night, 
I, I said to him, look, obviously I'm in this kind of peculiar position of being a fan, but also being at the games as a journalist and, you know, trying to kind of wear both of those two. Straddle those and, two. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I said to him, like, I, I try and watch these games, like with a critical distance, but I said, I couldn't with this one. I said, I, I felt like I experienced this one emotionally just because it wasn't just the injury. It was how the team responded to it. Mm. They were so depleted and they'd seen another player like stretched off. And I think they all know what ha- what happened to her. And they like they still played really, really well with all these injuries. They've beaten Bayern Munich. They've beaten Chelsea. They've beaten Man City. Like they beat Man City. Katie McCabe still had a hole in her boot. She showed us um, from like the Bayern Munich game on Wednesday night. She goes off on crutches and in a boot. And four days later, she scores the winner against Man City. Like, that's the kind of stuff that's been going on. Mm. Like, they've been really patched up, but they've been playing well. And it's so weird to go into a game against a team as good as Wolfsburg with all those injuries and still think, I think we've got a chance here because I can just see something in this group where that, like, there's something... I think there is something special in this group, like... They, they just refuse to let it get them down. Um, so I, I I don't think they can do that. I don't think they will do that. And I think as well with, with Arsenal, like Arsenal still carries itself in a certain way in women's football. Um, you know, Arsenal are still... Arsenal Wolfsburg was a Champions League semi-final 10 years ago mm. um, in 2013. These are two massive clubs in women's football. There are a lot of clubs who are in the latter stages of the Champions League who were not interested in women's football in 2013. Um, one of them, you know, Chelsea are in the other semi-final. They finished bottom of the WSL in 2012. Didn't care. Mm. John Terry wrote a cheque to save them, um, which is one of the most conflicting stories I've ever heard. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> and but that's absolutely true. And, and then like Arsenal, yeah, in women's football terms... Mm. They just, I hate to make this comparison. They're a bit like Man United in like men's football sure, terms. Yeah, yeah. It's like we're, you know, or Liverpool in the European Cup. It's like, no, we're a big deal and mm. fuck the rest of you, frankly. So okay. I think that's how they'll do it. All right. Well, look, um, the first leg against Wolf- Wolfsburg takes place on, on Sunday. The home leg is Monday, May the 1st and tickets are still available. They're on general sale right now. Yeah. That's correct, yeah. At the time of recording, we're up to 45,000. Wow. Um, which is incredible. Arsenal played Wolfsburg in the Champions League quarterfinal last year. I think it was 9,000 um, for the home game, which is you know, still pretty good. But mm. yeah, 45,000. And uh, There's a chance of selling this out. There's a chance. That and would I know be, the club want to shoot for it. That would be amazing. So look, if you want to get along and give this team your support, they're playing in red and white. Tickets available right now. Just go to the Arsenal website. You'll find the details on there. Let's keep fingers crossed for that, Tim. Uh, take it easy. Thanks very much. My pleasure as always. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Thank you very much indeed to Tim. You can find him on Twitter. He is at Stillmanator, at Stillmanator, and providing the best coverage of Arsenal women you will find anywhere over on Arsblog News and, of course, on the Arsenal Women Arsecast, which you will find in all the usual podcast places. Just a couple of quick things. Uh, I just, uh, as I've been recording this, saw that Elliot, uh, at Yankee Gunner on Twitter, but, of course, most of you will have him blocked at this point, just posted a message to say that the fundraiser that we're doing for the Arsenal Foundation has gone over £200,000, which is absolutely amazing. There's still 30 days, still 10 days left in April. So first and foremost, thank you so much to everybody who has donated, who has given um, what you've done and what you're doing for this fundraiser is absolutely mind-blowing to all of us. So thank you very much. If you haven't yet and you're in a position that you could give a couple of quid to this foundation, you'll find a link to the Just Giving page in the show notes or over on the blog post, which contains this podcast on arsblog.com. The other way, of course, is if you sign up for our Patreon this month, we are donating every single penny Plus, James and Andrew Allen are giving up their wages to add to this fundraiser. So we're giving everything that we make in April to this fundraiser as well. So you can donate via Just Giving. You can sign up for our Patreon and get all the Patreon stuff, and you can dig it for a month, and you know that your money's going to a good cause. And if you don't like it, you can just cancel, and that's fine. So you've got lots of ways to contribute, but there's still 10 days to go. So let's see how far we can push this amazing fundraiser. The other thing I wanted to mention is that um, I I talked about how we were in New York for a live event, which we were. And as with every time we do something like this, the the face-to-face interactions, if you like, the meeting people who are part of this community was was just so much fun. We are going to be doing an event towards the end of the season in London. We have booked, as we did last year, Union Chapel in Islington the night before the final game of the season, which is Saturday, the 27th of May. That event is going to go on sale Monday or Tuesday of next week. One of the benefits of being a Patreon member is you get first access to those tickets. Given how quickly our New York event sold out, which was like 30 minutes, if you do want to make sure that you've got the best chance of of getting a ticket for our London event, being a Patreon member allows you early access to those. And if there are any that can go on general sale afterwards, they will. But your best chance, as I said, is being a Patreon member here or Arsenal Vision. Uh, our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash arsblog if you want to sign up. Patreon.com forward slash arsblog. What we do over there, by the way, usually for a Premier League game is we do a specific Premier League podcast. But because of the way this fixture has fallen on a Friday and press conferences and all that kind of stuff, we're not doing that this week. We're amalgamating that into this week's podcast. And joining me on this particular section of the show is the man who does the preview podcast with me over on Patreon. It's Lewis Ambrose. Hello, Lewis. Hello, Andrew. It's nice to hear that you've mostly recovered. (laughs) From your trip to America? Mostly, yeah. You know, I'm doing a good job here. I'm just going to finish this recording with you and then going to slump on the sofa. And yeah, no, I'm getting there. I'm getting there. You know, I have to say the stamina 
is not what it was. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting older. Is that it? Could be. You said it. Yeah, not me. I said it. But look, let's talk a little bit about this week and a lot of conversation that's been going on about Arsenal's last two results. Understandably, two 0 up against Liverpool, draw two two. Two 0 up against West Ham, draw two two. I think what's so interesting about this is we're all looking for the reason why, or, you know, is it a mentality thing? Is it cockiness? Is it complacency? Have we bottled it? All these kinds of things that are going on. And I think what's so interesting, I'm genuinely fascinated by this because the range of opinions across the board from all kinds of people, like there's always some crazy shit going on out there when it comes to football. And you can usually go, well, that, that, that guy's crazy or that girl is crazy. I don't have to pay any attention to them. But across the board, there's been this range of of ideas about why this is happening. First off, the, the fact that we drew two games that feel essentially like a defeat, how much of that is down to the fact that we were 2-0 up in both those games or how much is down to the fact that we've got Manchester City chasing us and we know how difficult that is, that every drop point feels like a kick in the balls? That's actually a really good question. I hadn't I hadn't exactly thought of it. Well, I had at times this week, but definitely on Sunday, like in the heat of the moment, you don't think of it like that. You're just like, oh God, it's happened again. Mm. Um and then you take a step back and like the reason this would not have been fatal. This would not have been, it, it's not fatal. Uh, it felt like it on Sunday. It felt like it to, to some people and not to others at Anfield. That like, was it two points dropped or a point gained thing because of the way the game ended, obviously at Liverpool. Mm. Sunday, I think it was a lot more clear cut against West Ham that it felt like two points dropped, that it was two points dropped. Yeah. But all of the, I think the only people on the planet who know how we feel about these things right now are Liverpool fans. Because the the bar has been moved Manchester City have raised the bar. We won the the Invincibles did not score as many goals as we have already scored and picked up 90 points, which is a number that I think if we now don't reach, people are going to be really disappointed. Mm. Um, well, I don't think that. If we don't reach 90 points, people are going to be gutted and furious. The number of points that the Invincibles got, uh, the the most number of points that any Arsenal Wenger team ever got, the, the two double teams didn't, Mm. get that close so yeah the the ex the not the expectation but the the expectation has changed because of the season so far but what is needed to achieve what you want to achieve has changed and Liverpool finished second with 92 points and second with 97 points they're in they're amongst the absolute very highest points totals that any team has ever picked up in Premier League history mm. they would have won the league in with the 97 point uh, season they would have won the league in all but two Premier League campaigns and they were the team that won it in one of the other ones <laughs> and with the 92 point season I think you're, you're looking at sort of you can count on one hand the number of times they wouldn't have won uh, the Premier League in the yeah uh, what over 20 years um, over or 30 years sorry since it's since it's been going now so yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a chunk of 42 game seasons included in that as well, and not just 38 game seasons. So Manchester City have completely changed the dimensions of what a title winning team looks like, what a title winning team has to look like. The two games did feel like two defeats. I, as the week's gone on, I've managed to 
compartmentalize a little bit and bring my <laughs> bring myself back to some sort of sane, relaxed position where I'm just looking at the cushion that we managed to put together and that cushion's now gone, but mm. thank God we had it. Thank God Reese Nelson scored against Bournemouth. Thank goodness Emmy Martinez mistimed <laughs> his dive. And I mean, mate, it's going over. Just let it go. It's not going in. Uh, against Aston Villa. Thank goodness Eddie and Ketia sort of bundled the ball home in the final. Like, that's three injury time winners in the space of the last couple of months. Yeah. And without any of them. And I know, like, on the other hand, you can obviously talk about Bukayo Saka's penalty on Sunday. You can talk about the Brentford VAR debacle on the offside goal that was allowed to stand. Mm. But that's that just sort of sums up the absurdity for it uh, for me now. This title to beat this Manchester City team, you need Reese Nelson to have two perfect touches in the ninety seventh minute of the game. You need the ball to hit Emmy Martinez on the back, and then maybe you can get away with missing one penalty, and that is it. Because otherwise, you have to be perfect. I mean, that is the stark reality that we face. And, you know, what's what's so interesting about this is that, you know, after the Bournemouth game, after the Aston Villa game, after the Manchester United game, Arsenal, people were talking about Arsenal showing character and resilience and never say die spirit. And that's really true. I genuinely think that's true because you, you, you keep going and you get your reward sometimes. And for it to happen three times in one season is no accident. And that suggests that there is something within the immeasurable character of a team that, that allows things like that to happen, right? But before but, the last five years, these are exactly the incidents that the entire world would point at and just scream the words championship form. And <laughs> Manchester City have completely eroded with like their just their consistent level of brilliance yeah. have completely eroded the idea that these things just happen to the team that's destined to win sure. the title. But I mean, when when I think I think when Mikel Arteta is you know after the Bournemouth game, after the United game, after the after the uh, the Villa game, you know his analysis of that has got to be a lot more measured. Right, as much as we all celebrate those moments and live for those moments because they're so exciting and exhilarating as a football fan, you know, you don't go into a game of football as a manager or a group of players going, you know, what we'll do, we'll just keep it on the level till right at the last minute, and then we'll sucker punch them with a, an injury time winner. <laughs> like nobody, these things happen, but you don't plan for that. You don't build teams or build structures or tactics or things like that to happen. So I think Arteta can can say, look, yes, we do have character. We did show character. We did show resilience. We did show heart or spirit or whatever you want. But in the cold light of day, when he sits down to say, well, how did that game go? What could we have done better in that game? It's got to be like the 96 minutes that come before the 97th minute that are the things that he's looking at until something extraordinary and something, you know, in inverted commas, kind of random happens. Yeah, and I think I think he relishes that a little bit as well. I think he probably, and, and from everything we see from him publicly too, I think Mikel Arteta uses those moments to tell the players what they've not done right. Mm. Um, I think after Liverpool and I think after West Ham especially, he was clearly livid. But I would bet that the focus after Liverpool, after West Ham, 
was on the first 25 minutes of both games and making sure we continue to do what we did well in mm. those moments. The players are already going to feel down and there's no point, you know, dragging them down even further with, with criticism and blame within the walls of the, the training ground, I mean. And I'm sure after Bournemouth and the same way, you know, the after Manchester United, I'm sure Mikel Arteta is looking at what didn't go right in those games and, and telling the players, like you say, right, that's great that that happened, but why were we in that position to begin with? And it, it's sort of after these two recent games, which were draws, like like you say, we've we've drawn two football matches. We've not lost one. We've not lost for two months. And mm. we'd won the seven in a row before these two. So like it is kind of the perspective, like I think just needs to be added over and over again that this isn't like a capitulation. Yeah. Um. I, but I think Arteta probably, yeah, when we're winning games is, is focused on keeping the players down to earth. And especially when we're winning close games, talking about why that game wasn't wrapped up earlier. And when we're dropping points the way that we've dropped them the, the last couple of weeks, especially, I'm sure that the focus is on what we actually did well and making sure that going forward Friday, next mm. week, the week after that, we don't do it for 25 minutes, but we do it for 25 minutes and get ourselves in a good position and then continue to do it. Yeah, or go 25 minutes again in the second half. We all understand that football ebbs and flows and the momentum of games can change. It struck me this week that there is, you know, there is um, an, entertained, an entertainment value to punditry, which I think bleeds into the way we think about things, right? I watched the Jamie Carragher stuff on Sky, and I think genuinely Jamie Carragher is really good on Sky. And I think the way he analyzes things is is usually pretty good. Uh, really good, in fact. He talked about the Thomas Partey incident when he tried to flick the ball beyond Declan Rice. Rice handled it, but in the in the world we live in, it's not really handball. And this was put down to complacency or cockiness it was too easy for Arsenal and they try things like this and then all of a sudden it changes where is like the the line between cocky and confident must be minute tiny because what you want from your players is to is to play with confidence and to feel like they can express themselves on the pitch and there's certain times where it's like okay you know, we should do just do the simple thing. But what is the simple thing for Thomas Partey in that position? How many times have we seen him do that? How many times have we mm. seen him back himself to flick his way out of trouble and stride through midfield and everyone's like, this guy is the fucking engine of our midfield. You know, it's it's a really thin line, isn't it? That the one day it comes off or it doesn't come off, you're cocky. But all season long, you can be a confident... Um, offensive, aggressive arrogant. player. Ar yeah, yeah, that thing, that, that somehow you're arrogant that, because you've tried something that you've done 10 or 20 times in a season to great effect. And I, I just, I feel like sometimes the language of punditry doesn't really reflect what we've seen. It's great for entertainment value. It's great to get people talking and you know, you'll get lots of tweets and people will react to it and all that kind of stuff. But it's not really a reflection of, of the reality of how football works. No, there were two there were two narratives this week and that was one of them and the other one was obviously that word bottling mm. which I 
think is like the worst thing to happen to football in the last 10 years if you ignore like nation states and things like that any, any, um, anyone who says um, a football team has bottled it should be bottled with actual bottles is that what yeah, you're saying yeah I'm, I'm fine I'd yeah. sign up for that yeah sign <laughs> me up um, unless of course it's Spurs because we know that they have a, a deep <laughs> deep history with doing that they know so. they that's they Tottenham it that's different um, <laughs> you know like the idea that a team that's capable of uh, in inverted commas, bottling a situation like Sunday would not go 2-0 up in the first 10 minutes as their response to what happened at Anfield the week before. Like mm. they would, you know, like this, this idea that teams bottle it, um, you know, it's like they're, they're sitting there shivering, terrified of the bad result happening. Well, then you don't turn up for 15 minutes and absolutely blow away a Premier League team away from home mm. if, you know, if, if that's the case. And complacency... I don't know. Like it's, it's just impossible, right? Because what you said with the with Thomas Party, and he does that over and over again every single weekend, and we see him do it successfully, constantly. And then the one time it doesn't come off, then he has a mental problem, um, an attitude yeah. problem, or whatever is is kind of what you're suggesting. If someone's overly confident, if they're cocky, they're arrogant, they're taking the opposition lightly. So. You know, these things, they just don't add up. I think football punditry can be boiled down to, like the issues or a lot of the issues in football punditry can be boiled down to sort of outcome bias and trying to find an explanation for everything. Mm. When, unfortunately, and it's I think that's a human thing. We want to be able to understand why something happened. Black and white, but yeah. Football does not work like that. It like, we cannot understand why suddenly Bukayo Saka missed that penalty, having not just scored all of his recent penalties. I think it was, I think it was four in the Premier League mm. before Sunday, four out of four, but like confidently, calmly dispatching all of them. These things sometimes just cannot be explained, and you know, and the same way that if like I don't think there's a there's an Arsenal or a West Ham fan on the planet that doubts what the result would have been had Bukayo Saka's penalty gone in, which doesn't make any sense because <laughs> West Ham were clearly like they scored a few minutes later, they were on top of us for a while. We mm. really didn't get going at all. The ball hitting the back of the net, or not hitting the back of the net, or a decision being given or not being given, can change the momentum and all of those things in the game. And that, you know, that goes down to Thomas Party, whether or not he flicked the ball around Declan Rice or whether it hits Declan Rice and mm. and West Ham get to start their attack. It, it goes the exact same way. It completely changes football matches. And sometimes you just got to put your hands up. Like that Bournemouth game, and you know, that we've already talked about. Like the Aston Villa game. Like sometimes these things just happen and then you get to the end of the season and we all want to talk about why we won the league because we're the best team on the planet. It's like, yeah, but also because the ball hit Emmy Martinez on the back and you just can't really account <laughs> for shit like that. I mean, that's it. It's the randomness of football. And it's one of the things that, that uh, keeps us coming back because you've got 11 guys against 11 guys and external forces, you know, whether that's uh, the opposition fans or the home fans or it's the decision from the referee or the weather you know, it's too windy or it's too slippy and all these things. So we talk about control in football a lot and how important that is, right? The reason is, and I said this on the blog this week, is that the more you, the more you have control, the less chance there is of something mm -hmm. random happening against you. The more you have it, the more chance that, that random thing might happen in, in your favor, and I think that obviously is part and parcel of the way Mikel Arteta talks about the game, right? 
He talks about like the 300,000 passes, all of those kinds of things. It's not an accident that he does that. And I'm not putting, you know, football down to chance because that's clearly not the case. There are tactics and structures and organizations and everyone's got their jobs to do and they're well drilled. But all of that is designed to take the, the that however much percentage of chance there is out of it. It's to help you control it so you don't go where for oh fuck the ball's in yep. the back of our net. You know. Yeah. The, yeah. The more the more you control, you have the the less randomness can impact the game. I guess yeah. is you know that like you say that the influence of just pure luck grows smaller and smaller the more that you uh, manage to control the game. And and obviously that, that expands over a whole season. I mean, go back to go back to the Invincibles, the gold standard of Arsenal teams, mm. of Arsenal history, modern history for sure. And it's because a bloke hit the bar with a penalty, like yeah. in, in September, <laughs> months before anyone knew any of that was even possible. Yeah. And no one's taking anything away from the Invincibles. They're we all know what they achieved and how incredible it is, but that just underlines how unlikely and impossible it is that even they had to survive that moment mm. for what they achieved to go on to be possible. Uh, that's, I think that just sums up the amount of luck that is involved. Mm. Uh, and in an entire campaign, you've got God knows how many opportunities for luck or chance to have an influence on a single match over 38 games it's constant and this is like it's why we watch football as well because the best team doesn't always win that's yeah. why cup upsets can happen teams that are tactically better or technically better or physically better they don't necessarily win their games and that what makes it so great that's what when you are one of the best teams can make it incredibly frustrating as mm. well um, and I just think on a, like on a really human level, it's just really hard to accept that when your team is really, really good and needs to win every game, that sometimes you don't win because shit happens. I mean, yeah, that's true. That's true. There is, I think, you know, a title race is a difficult thing. And I think as you get towards the end of a title race, mad shit is going to happen. Mad things will happen. And that, you know that's sort of out of your control to an extent as well, how you deal with pressure, how you deal with expectation, all of those things play a part in, in the way a team can operate. But, you know, looking at it or stepping back from that, you know, there are other reasons why games might not go in your favor. There are other reasons why you may not have control as much as you used to have control in games. So I want to talk a little bit about the absences. Here is Mikel Arteta. I'm just going to play a couple of clips here um, from his press conference today, if I can find them. Uh, yeah, first one is about William Saliba. This is his injury update on William Saliba. This is the first bit, so I'll play this now. And regarding William, uh, we are still to wait a little bit more. Um, He's not progressing as quick as we hoped. Um, he's a bit delicate, and uh, we want to be very certain when we push him that he's ready to to absorb um, the load and and the risk that we would take. And at the moment, that's that's not possible to do. And then he was asked if it might be a an end of season situation for Saliba, and this is what he went on to say: I don't know. It's a, it's a bit early to do. Probably next week we're going to have more certainty. Um, there is some evolution. He's doing more activity, but he's not there yet to to start to throw him the pitch um, at the level that uh, that the sessions demand to compete in this league. 
So even though we saw some pictures of him cycling on an exercise bike this week, there is a big distance between cycling on an exercise bike and playing Premier League football. Your gut feeling, and that's all I'm asking you for because you don't have any more information on this than, than you or I or anybody else apart from those inside Arsenal. Does that sound like William Saliba is going to be back anytime soon, if at all, this season? Uh, my best guess is that they have no idea <laughs> mm. that that they don't know. You know, he talks about the the sort of the development of the injury and his. They're obviously increasing what Saliba's able to do, but it's going a bit slower than they'd hoped. I think the the gap that you you mentioned there um, between being on an exercise bike and playing Premier League football, the intensity, the twisting and turning, the the physical battle with the centre forward. I think at this point they have no clue if it will be two weeks or two months until his body can handle all those things, unfortunately. Mm. Which, of course, is a blow because Saliba has been a very important player for us. And it leads us to his replacement. Now, there's a really good piece on Sky Sports by uh, Nick Wright, uh, which I will put a link to in the, in the show notes today. And he sort of looked at how the team has changed since Saliba's been injured and Rob Holding has come into the team. I don't, I'm not like out to do a hatchet job on Rob Holding or anything like that. The reality is he is our third choice right center half because if Takahiro Tomiyasu was fit, he would be playing right back and Ben White would be playing center half. So the pecking order in that right center back position is uh, Saliba, then Ben White, if Saliba can't play, and then it's Rob Holding. At Premier League level, I, I'm you know firmly convinced that would be the pecking order if Tommy Asu was fit. So the Tommy Asu injury, that that moment where he just happened to slip on the pitch in the uh, game against Sporting, um, you know, has had huge ramifications for this team because I think. It's the on-the-ball stuff that he talks about in this Sky Sports article and the difference between how we play with Saliba on the ball and how we play with Rob Holding on the ball. Something as um, you know, simple as where the passes are going. Holding is much more inclined to pass. Infield, where Saliba is much more uh, involved with getting us down the right-hand side, whether that's passes to Ben White or whether that's passes to Bakayo Saka. Like if if uh, he as a Sky Sports columnist is looking at this and is aware of this, we can be quite sure that this is something that Mikel Arteta and his staff and his analysts are aware of as well, right? How do we cope with this or deal with this, you know, given as well that Zinchenko appears to be further away than we thought based on Arteta's press conference comments today, Whereas Zinchenko might give you that bit more of left-sided bias when you don't have him in the team as a as a like the guy often with the most touches, um, and Saliba is somebody who's often uh, on the ball and and progressing the ball in a way that Holding doesn't. I mean, is it any surprise that the team isn't quite as effective as it was when you take at least one of the key pieces out of it? I mean, no, it's not. Yeah. Um, I'd like to point to a club on the planet that could deal with, like you say, like it's not just Sleeber, it's compounded by losing uh, Tomiyasu at the same time. So the solution that 
would have been there to move Ben White to centre back and, and play Tom Yasuo at right back isn't there anymore. Mm. Um, we would then would have been left with with, if, with Zinchenko fit with a better back four than the back four that almost got us into the Champions League last season. Mm. So Gabriel White, Tommy Asu and, and Zinchenko with with Zinchenko out as well, we would still have the same back four that almost got into, into the Champions League and our sort of bid for top four last season only fell by the wayside when we lost a couple of those players. So we would have had the sort of a, a top four level back four available still, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, Rob Holding, I think there's a, I think there are two things happening. And I think one of them is that Rob Holding isn't as good as William Saliba. And I think the other thing is that Rob Holding maybe thinks that he's worse than he is. Uh, I thought against West Ham on Sunday, some of the choices, to and, and at Anfield especially, to go long when he didn't have to go long. There was a pass on. Hmm. But, you know, um, getting the ball long makes a defender feel safe a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, Rob Holding's played in his starts this season. I had a look earlier. He's playing seven and a half He's playing fewer passes than Sleeper, only five, but you know, fewer passes than Sleeper, fewer passes, about the same number of passes as Gabriel. Um, Gabriel plays about five long balls a game, successful and unsuccessful combined. Attempts five long balls. Saliba uh, is like four and a half, and Rob Holding seven and a half, almost twice the number of long balls. Uh, I guess clearances, if you like, that, that may or may not fall to an Arsenal player. Is there a difference, um, sorry, just to cut across there, I mean, is there a difference between a clearance, which I think, you know, uh, all defenders have to do and have to make, and a long pass that may or may not find, I mean, you can make a long, some, yeah. you can make a clearance look like a long pass, or I you can make like, a long pass look like a clearance, depending on like where it ends Opta, up. Yeah. I think Opta would have like, there's a, there's a, there's a, a combination, right? Like you can have a clearance that, yeah, that is counted as a long pass. Mm. But still, the fact is that Gabriel and Saliba don't have anywhere near as many because mm. I'm sure there are situations where a ball comes into the box and Rob Holding clears it, which may or may not get counted as a long pass by Opta, and William Saliba takes a touch and looks to then play out from there um, or maybe clear it afterwards. But I think, you know, it's... The Mikel Arteta said it years ago, the, the quicker the ball goes upfield from the back, the quicker it comes back towards us. Mm. And I think that's an, an element of Rob Holding's game as well at the moment when I wouldn't call it panicking, but just sort of trying to do the safe thing. It isn't. It, feel, it always feels like playing out from the back, taking your time, playing those short passes and, and tempting the, the, the opposition to come on to you. That feels like the risky thing. But when you're there at... West Ham the other day or at Anfield and you're hoofing the ball back up to their centre-backs for them to just start an attack over again and over again and mm. over again. I mean, it might not feel riskier in the moment, but if we come back to control, that's the thing that's not going to help you control the game. And and you can, and I think when you lose control of a game like that, especially away from home, it becomes really, really hard to regain it. Yeah. So, yeah, like, you know, like you said, point people towards the, the Sky Sports piece, Rob Holding... I think a lot of there's been a lot of focus on what he can or can't do defensively. Like he's a bit slow, and that kind of thing compared to William Saliba. But our whole game has to change, and and then that's obviously you know twofold when you take Zinchenko out. Yeah, I mean the the thing about the Partey 
bit with Declan Rice was I went back to look at it again um, through sober eyes, <laughs> not eight o'clock New York eyes. And when he picks up the ball, you know, go, it goes into a dangerous uh, channel. Gabrielle deals with it. Rob Holding then takes the ball on and he takes one touch and two touches, mm. and three touches and four touches and five touches. And on the sideline, Mikel Arteta is gesturing for him to make the pass much more quickly. And maybe he's waiting for a guy to come on to him before he makes a pass. But if you amble towards the top of the D from inside your own box and you take five touches to get that, I mean, that's not how we play. And that's not how you should play. You know, make that pass quickly. Stretch the opposition. Get the ball back if you want. You know, readjust between the, the two central defenders who've got to get back into position because holding a come to the left, Gabriel had gone to the right. And, you know, again, I don't, I don't mean this to be any kind of a hatchet job on Rob Holding, but those are the things, I think, when you analyze what went wrong at West Ham, those are the things that you have to look at, bottle or complacency or cockiness. I think it's just more technical. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a better explanation as to why certain things happened than dealing in the untangibles. What was our ex-cock you know, I don't know. Nobody knows, but I know that one of our central defenders took too many touches on the ball. And because of that, we got caught and then there was a soft penalty mm -hmm. and all the rest of it. You know, to me, that that I, I feel like that bears more examination because you can at least try and find a solution to that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure that's something that's been brought up. Like, I'm sure that Rob Holding, whose job has been really different, not just this season, but last season as well, right? Mm -hmm. Rob Holding's job, Rob Holding in training every week, I'm sure is sort of playing our way and Mikel Arteta's way in case he needs to come into the team. But when he's actually been on the pitch in a competitive environment, his job has been get rid of it. Stand there in the middle, win the headers, mm. clear the ball, because it's five minutes to go and we've got a one-goal lead. And that's sort of all the football, all the Premier League football anyway, that Rob Holding has played for the last 18 months. Rob Holding now has to play a completely different way. And like I say, I'm sure he has been training it. But these days on the training ground at the moment are so important to get that out of him. To And, and I think probably to build that confidence that he can do it as well. Like, I think... He's a, you know, there's so much talk about he's a great guy and not moaning about not playing and all that kind of thing. But it must be in his head that the manager does not trust him. Like, it, he, it's human. Mm. You've not played a Premier League game from the start all season because the manager doesn't think you're going to win if you play. Or the manager thinks the chances of winning, at least, are, are damaged by playing you. Even at home against, I mean, he did play in the end, you know, obviously Crystal Palace and Leeds. Uh, since since William Saliba's been missing. But even earlier in the season, those home games, I don't know, West Ham, Fulham, Everton, Rob Holding didn't play those games because Mikel Arteta thought we can't afford to play Rob Holding in those games. And he's right. Like if you have the choice between William Saliba and Rob Holding, you obviously pick William Saliba. Mm. But that's got to do something to you as a, as a professional athlete, as a competitor. Mentally, it has to do something to you that you now come into this situation where everyone is flying and you know, maybe I don't quite belong at this level and maybe I'm going to let everybody down or let some people down. And that's more pressure than anyone else in the team right now has to deal with, mm. with just the title race. 
and I think, you know, that human element exists as well. And that's on the training ground where they have to build Rob holding up. They have to play their patterns, passing out from the back, and they have to make sure he's doing it in one and two touches like Gabriel would or like William Saliba does especially. And just try and get him into a rhythm mm. of going into competition on Friday now against Southampton and playing like he can in training every day because he belongs there. He feels like he belongs there. Look, I've seen a lot this week, and I think that's a really good point about the human element and how you might feel coming into a team like this or how Rob Holding might feel coming into a team like this. I've seen a lot this week people proffering solutions about, you know, what we do and like, well, we've got to get Ben White back into the center of defense. And look, if we had a, if we had a right back that we could realistically play, then I'd be all for that. I've seen people talking about, well, let's get Rule Walters in there. This, you know, kid, he's 18 years of age, good prospect, but let's just get him in there. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, you know what we need in our midfield? Miguel Aziz. That's the guy that we need to... And Miguel Aziz, you know... I think he's talented. getting the odd minute for Wigan he's at the moment. Occasional minutes for Wigan. And that's kind of what this reminds me of. The reality of the situation that we're in right now, it doesn't really lend itself to giving an 18-year-old right back who's played a lot of his football at centre-half, you know, throw him into the team... You know, in the middle of a title race, where's your next game after your home game? Oh, Man City. Okay. Yeah, sure. That doesn't really make any sense. You know, the... At least the, with the Miguel Aziz thing, we were eighth. Yeah. Like, we, we didn't really have that much to throw away. Yeah. But there's a there's a league title on the line now. Well, there is. And as, uh, un, as you know, what's unideal, I was going to say, but, you know, even if it isn't the best option that we have, I don't know what other options we have. There's talk of, you know, we'll get Zinchenko at right back or get Tierney at right back. And I'm sorry, you know, I like Kieran Tierney, but I think he suffers in some of the same ways that Rob Holding does in terms of how he uses the ball and, and you know, what he does with the ball. Um, so I'm not convinced by a left back at right back you very, very rarely see it anyway. Could Zinchenko do it? Yeah, he's a great technical player. You know, possibly he could. But let's not be blind to the fact that Zinchenko also has some defensive issues, you know, when he plays in his, in inverted commas, natural position. And that's like digging him out. But we've seen a few mistakes this season when he plays in his normal position. Players take a bit of time, you know, out of position to, to get used to things. I mean, are there... Are there realistic options for Mikel Arteta to change this? Could we go to a back three? Who do you play at right wing back even if we go to a back three? You know, the the fear I think we all have, and understandably, doesn't really align with the options that we have to change things. You know, particularly given the, the, the point of the season that we're at. Yeah, I'm guilty of it as well. We're all guilty of it. Um, but we sit there and we think, oh, maybe we could change this and maybe I would like to see that tried. Mm. It's really easy to sit here and say that this should happen or that should happen when you don't have to bear any of the consequences. When yeah. like you saying it will not make it happen, it will not happen. And we don't have to, you know, I mean, we have to live with the consequences of what Mikel Arteta chooses. Mm. But whatever I put out there, 
whatever you know crackpot idea I might want to want to try and suggest. Let's go back to Granite Jacker at left back, maybe. Well, I've seen um, that. I've seen that. I've yeah, seen yeah. That, like, like I've, I've over seen, and over I've this seen week. all of them today. All or or the last few days, all number of combinations of of back fours. Mm. Um, yeah, it's really easy for us, I think, to talk about those things and. And I think it's normal to have that sort of curiosity about whether or not they could work. But ultimately, Mikel Arteta is more qualified than any of us, I think it's safe to say. Mikel Arteta will play the team that he thinks. And like, it's almost like you're saying that it's impossible. You can't go to Man City. Like, it's impossible. You can't go to Man City with Rob Holding and get a point, mm. which just isn't true. Like, it's obviously possible. Bayern Munich drew with Manchester City last night and Deo Upamecano had the worst centre-back performance I've seen for years. Oh my God, that was so bad. <laughs> so, you know, like, yeah. it's it's not impossible to draw with Manchester City because Rob Holding's playing. We won an FA Cup final with a much younger, less experienced Rob Holding alongside left-back Nacho Monreal at centre-back and a per Saka who hadn't started a single game all season. Yeah. And we beat the that season's Premier League winners in, in an FA Cup final. So, firstly, n- no result is inevitable, uh, you know, not just against City, against Southampton and all the other remaining games that we have, just because Rob Holding's playing. I, like There are things that you could try, obviously. You could play a back three and bring Kivior in uh, or play Tierney sort of as, a, as one of the centre-backs if Sinchenko is fit and, and have Gabriel and Ben White as the other two centre-backs. And then, well, I guess, sort of... But then you pull Bukayo Saka deeper and further away from the opposition goal because you have him as the, right the wing-back, back, I guess, is, yeah. the, is the most natural way to play that shape with the players that we have now. You could play Kivior, but... People make a big deal of this like left foot, right foot thing of the centre-backs that Mikel Arteta is hell-bent on. I think you need to factor in the fact that we that they train which patterns to pass in and where to pass the ball. And it does actually change quite a lot if you're passing mm. from a certain place with a left foot or with a right foot or to a player who's left or right-footed. I mean, we're talking about Rob Holding taking too many touches. If you put a left-footed player in that position, mm. then that player is definitely going to take too many foot touches because the ball's going to keep coming to his right foot and he's going to want to keep getting it back on his left foot. So like, ultimately, we want a solution. We have a problem. We're all looking for a solution, but the solution I don't think exists. There's no way to, there's no like genius way that Mikel Arteta hasn't figured out to sort of shuffle the Rubik's Cube and have everything exactly how it should be. Uh, if any team in the world lost William Saliba, who was playing every week, they would miss him, uh, Manchester City aside. And I think that's that's one other thing I would touch on is Manchester City and Pep Guardiola because the parallels are there with the way we play football and that kind of thing. And Guardiola's notorious for tweaking and shuffling. And right now everyone's watching John Stones play in midfield and a back three made up of three centre-halves and they're winning every single game. Mm. Uh, when, when Guardiola went to Bayern Munich, it was obviously his first job outside of Barcelona, where everybody in the academy learned to play football a very particular way, including mm-hmm. him, and that was fine. He went to Bayern Munich, and in the, the Marty Perenal book about his first season there, the, I think some of the coaching staff talked about the problem that they had at the beginning of getting Bayern Munich players to play Pep Guardiola's football. I mean, Bayern Munich had just won the Champions League and probably had the best squad in the world, but they couldn't play Pep Guardiola's football, and they described it as trying to learn a new language. First, you have to teach them the alphabet. You have to teach them the numbers. And then eventually, after a year or two, 
they might have a decent grasp of the language that mm. they have to speak on the pitch. And right now we see Guardiola with this three centre-backs and John Stones in midfield. And I think in terms of talent and ability, we might have the players to do something like that. But they don't know the language fluently yet. Guardiola's been a, at City for six or seven years and he can shuffle these things. And I think the tweaks aren't so extreme because the players know exactly what he wants all the time. And Mikel Arteta, it, it takes that long. I think it takes four or five or six years until you're at that point. And this is this team's, really, it's maybe their second season. It's really their first season of playing football at this level. And they're just not there yet. They're not ready yet to, to sort of go out with, roll out with a crazy formation and yeah. just do the things that they usually do. I think that's a great point. And, you know, just to bring it back to Rob Holding, you know, when people say, well, it's time to move on from Rob Holding, it's, you know, this has passed him by or whatever it might be. How many, how many fucking central defenders did Manchester City get through under Pep Guardiola before they, you know, developed this array that looks almost interchangeable where any one of them can play anywhere. I, you know, I think of the names, think of the money that they spent on these guys who came in, looked all right, floundered, and then fucked off somewhere else or were fucked off somewhere else because they just could not do it. Earlier today, Nathan Ake went off injured last night in the Champions League. Mm. And earlier today, a Man City supporting friend said to me, um, Oh, we're we're screwed against you if Laporte has to play against Saka on that left hand side, <laughs> and we're like, we will happily take Imeric Laporte off your hands as an extra centre back if you're looking for a home for him. <sighs> like they're playing right now, you know that's it. They're playing Ake, they're playing Diaz, they're playing Stones, they're playing Akanji. Mm. And Laporte's just sitting on the bench as the fifth centre-back, not getting any minutes. Imagine and then he's it's like, your... oh no, he might have to play a couple of games. Come he's, on. He's your fifth centre-back. I mean, that that shows you, you know? Oh. And they're the only team in the world. Any other team, that, like if we say Ben White's our, our second choice, right centre-back, and if this injury to Saliba had happened to Gabriel, mm. and then Kivior would have come in on the left. So we're talking about sort of left and right centre-backs being two separate positions. Mm -hmm. And right now, because of simultaneous injuries, we have to play our third choice right centre-back. Yeah. This isn't the third or fourth choice centre-back. It's the third choice on one side of the defence. I don't think maybe Man City aside that there's a team on the planet that has somebody way better than Rob Holding taking up that space in their squad. That's just the yeah. the really unfortunate timing of these two injuries happening at the same time. All right. Well, look, um, we will have to hope that the team and Mikel Arteta can set them up in a way which, you know, looks to strengthen uh, the bits that Rob Holding is good at and offset some of the things that he's not quite so good at, whether that's, um, you know, changing the way he passes or changing the way he moves the ball. Um, very quickly, you know, Friday night against Southampton, a team at the bottom of the table, but who are not out of the relegation uh, or not relegated yet. You know, there's still so many teams down there. It looks bad for them. But that means that they're going to come and they're going to fight hard mm -hmm. tomorrow night. It is on paper the kind of game where you look at it and say, well, it's a team that's top versus a team that's bottom. 
this should be the outcome, but we're well aware that the the reality of how football works uh, isn't quite that. So, you know, if there's talk of complacency this week, if there's talk of, you know, cockiness or arrogance or whatever it is, none of that will be uh, allowed tomorrow night because I'm pretty sure Mikel Arteta said, if you get 2-0 up in this game, you know, easier said than done, <laughs> I know, chaps, but, you know, score another goal. Don't take your foot off the gas, whatever it might be. We don't want to be accused of this again for a third time in a row. So it might just focus the minds. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if if that Bournemouth game doesn't focus the minds of, of anyone who might take any game in this league a little bit lightly then nothing will uh, you know it was it was the same sort of situation i think it was not long after after we'd lost to to man city the last time we lost and it was uh, a gimme right a, a premier league game at home mm. saturday afternoon none of this sort of under the lights or anything and against the team that looked sort of uh, not dead and buried but very much mired in the relegation battle and within a few seconds we were one nil down mm. and by the time <laughs> by the time we got on the score sheet we were two nil down so yeah like i think if this this squad of all squads should not be taking anybody too lightly and you know southampton i think have, have definitely been better the results haven't been so great recently but since they changed manager mm. uh, a couple of months ago i think in the i remember you know it's a, it's a, it's a little while back now but sort of the first four games or so under Ruben Sellers. I think they they only, they only conceded in one of the eight halves they played or something like that. Mm. Um, you know, uh, they have looked a little bit more secure. They obviously beat uh, a torrid Tottenham side um, <laughs> and sent Antonio Conte's head to Mars. They... <laughs> They didn't look that bad. They lost 4-1 in the end, but they didn't look that bad for half a game against Manchester City a couple of weeks ago. So, And they've taken you know. points off us already this season. So, you know, there's an element of that. that. Yeah, so, all right. And with James Ward-Prowse, especially sort of anything near the box feels <laughs> feels almost like a penalty at times. Yeah. With you just sort of, he steps up for, for his free kicks and corners and you know you've, you've got the sort of the best player in the league in those situations standing over the ball. So there's no room for not just complacency, but any sort of silliness or sloppiness. And, yeah. and they'll be well aware of that. All right. Well, look, let's keep fingers crossed that we can um, get the win that we need to put ourselves seven points clear. Manchester City, of course, in uh, FA Cup action this weekend before we we head for their place next week. A game that we will preview for you, of course, over on Patreon. For now, though, we'll leave it there. Lewis, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed to Lewis. You can find him on Twitter at LG Ambrose, at LG Ambrose. And like I said, we do a preview podcast for every Premier League game over on Patreon every week, apart from this week because of, well, stuff and, you know, things. And who am I to thwart the very nature of uh, stuff and things? One of them, maybe, both, practically impossible. Anyway, that is that for this week's show. Thank you so much indeed for being here. Thank you for listening. We will have an Arsecast Extra for you on Sunday. Game is Friday night. We won't leave it as long as Monday. We will do that for you on Sunday at some point. Stay tuned for exactly when you can join myself and James for that one. For now, here's to the Friday night lights going in our favor and giving us the nice relaxing weekend that I think we all deserve. I'm going to leave it there for now. We will catch you on the next one. Until then, folks, cheers. Bye-bye.
Welcome back to Talk Shite Radio, talking shite about sport 24 hours a day. Now, before we talk some shine about some sport, I've got to address a serious issue here. During this week, there were some accusations leveled at me that I had put my penis inside a cake at the local Sainsbury's. I can assure everybody that that is absolutely not true. That video may have looked incriminating, but it was only a very short clip from a much longer video. Taken out of context, yes, it looks bad. My chopper is absolutely inside a lemon drizzle. However, somebody behind the scenes has filmed my private rehearsal for my one-man show coming up at the Edinburgh Fringe this August. I categorically deny that it took place in Sainsbury's or Waitrose or anywhere else for that matter. This was a private performance of Harry Canary, which you can buy tickets for from my own personal website. And uh, I don't appreciate the reporters calling to my house either. Thought we were chums. Anyway, let's go to the phone lines. First up, it is Steve, the Spurs fan, who wants to tell us why Christian Stellini should be blasted into space on a SpaceX rocket. Talk show, you ready? Talking shit about sport 24 hours a day. 24 hours a day. 